0: Welcome to Frankly Speaking with Lynne Franks and Friends. I'm Lynne Franks, your host. And today I'm talking with Stella Creasy, MP for Walthamstow. We will talk to her about what it's like being a feminist and an outspoken campaigner in Westminster, about her recent campaigns. And how we can all make positive changes in our communities. During such disruptive times when so many of us have been forced to stay in our own areas, there has been a rise in community engagement and also a visibility of the issues in our immediate neighbourhoods that we may not have had the time to look at in quite the same way before. Stella has been a tireless champion for those in her community of Walthamstow and she has helped people across the UK for over a decade now on various causes, from working to end violence against women, which is how we met with One Billion Rising uh, quite some time ago, to criticizing the absurd tampon tax. I am so pleased she made time to join this podcast for me to interview her. And I hope this interview inspires you to find all the ways of connecting with your communities in new ways. So since 2010, Stella has served as an MP for Walthamstow, fighting for the community and their causes. She is a mother and a feminist in Westminster, a tireless campaigner and an incredibly effective activist. And we are so very grateful to you, Stella Creasy MP, for joining us here today. And how are you? And I know exactly because you just told me before we started. So congratulations. Great news.
1: (laughs) Yes, I'm uh, halfway through my my second pregnancy, so uh, with a small child as well, I'm, I'm at that level where I'm really, really missing caffeine. I have to be honest about <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> what you're going to say then? I say missing <laughs> campaigning, and of course, being at home, well, for all of us, it's been such a change, um, and. Uh, especially with Westminster, which looks like a ghost town any time I happen to see it on the news. So what's it been like for you actually campaigning from home, still being an MP in Westminster? How does it all work?
1: Yeah, it's it's been difficult because the move to having online engagement in Parliament has come at a cost of being able to debate. So although we can make speeches online into the chamber, we can't follow up questions, we can't ask um, ministers about things they said, we can't query them um, it's also quite interesting just in terms of the the way in which it's been managed. And I would say it from all sides of the political spectrum. It's definitely been a boon for the whips offices. I think, to be able to manage who gets to speak when and how often people can speak and making sure things finish. But look, you know, we've had a pandemic. It would be insane to bring the thousands of people who come together in, in Westminster together on a daily basis when you're trying to get people to socially distance. So something... Had to give. I think the challenge for all of us is what comes next because um, I had a glorious evening where I spoke on a debate, something I felt very passionately about, about immigration. Um, I voted on it and I also did bed, bedtime and bath time with my daughter, um, all from the same sort of location. And if we're talking about how we make Westminster more accessible and we make political engagement more accessible, being able to fit it in with normal family life is a really key concern. So as much as there's been some downsides to the online engagement, there's also some potential upsides. I think it would be a shame if we lost them. Sadly, the person who has responsibility for leading that conversation is one Jacob Rees-Smog. He doesn't really have much of an ear to how you might engage families because he can't understand why everybody doesn't have a nanny.
0: Doesn't have a nanny, I was about
1: to say. So it's it's been a battle that we're having in Parliament about how we... How we, how we learn from what we've le- had over the last year in terms of online engagement, but also make sure that we can have the debates and discussions and challenge necessary for good decision-making.
0: Well, it's always been such a challenge for women MPs for all the years I've been involved with Westminster because of that very thing about it's a yeah. choice. You either see your children and you're involved with Helping them grow up. And of course, it's a choice for a lot of business women or has been in the past, or you work from home, which is has not been possible. Now it is. It's going to be a very interesting time to see how that rolls out. Um, but it hasn't kept you quiet. I must say, the one thing I find very worrying from what you said, and clearly uh, from your perspective as well, is this lack of debate, because there are a number of bills that are going through. And I want to talk about that a little bit later Mm. on, which in normal times, I would be very surprised if they weren't completely challenged in every in every way so it it it, it's not healthy this lack of debate clearly but but
1: don't forget that's not necessarily due to the pandemic I mean the government does have an 80 seat (laughs) majority and actually that's in our political history relatively unusual I came into parliament with um in 2010 when it became the coalition government um we then had Theresa May with a very narrow majority um but now things are very different so it's not all about about the pandemic um you know, look, that's why voting and participating in elections matters because yeah. when you are the government, you get to set what's on the agenda, and you get, especially if you've got a majority like that, um, to push things through. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 it's a, it's a challenge for people like me um, who've who've actually always worked across the house because I've always believed that if you're comfortable and confident in the things that you care about, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly ideological, but I'm not tribal. I, I know why I'm in the Labour movement, but I will talk to everybody and anybody about the causes and communities that I care about. Because that's how you make progress. Um, it just means you have to reassess how you work. So I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with members of the House of Lords, um, because in the House of Lords, the numbers are slightly different. And that's allowing us to get debates and discussions to come back to the House of Commons. good example of that is um, something misogyny. I'm on right now. Stalk, well, misogyny is hate crime and also the stalking register. You know, um, for years, we've been told that lessons will be learned every time a woman is killed by somebody who's a repeat offender. It's very clear that the existing system doesn't work. And we would like there to be a explicit register of serial perpetrators and stalkers. I mean, I, I think of cases like Shana Grice, who was, in fact, fined for wasting police time before she was murdered by her stalker, a man who had stalked 13 other women. Um a lot there's a lot of patterns in these kind of crimes. And um the brilliant Laura Richards, who is the, the world expert as far as I'm concerned about this, has always called for a stalking register. Um we weren't able to get anywhere on that in the Commons in trying to get the government having previously supported the idea. Theresa May supported the idea, they've now reneged on it. Um but in the Lords we were, and so last night we won a vote in the Lords for the proposal, which is going to come back to the Commons on Monday
0: um for, for people like me congratulations that's absolutely brilliant because yes. I got your text about that last night <laughs> because I'm on your list obviously <laughs> and um I this whole idea of using Twitter social media and texting was used by you from the beginning because you're a modern woman of today and I think you I like on to the, the
1: pictures Lynn that's why the- I like social media <laughs> But, you know, but you, I always
0: enjoy good animal video. <laughs> <laughs> but you were texting me about and, and millions of other people about your campaigns for years long before people realised that that was a very effective way of getting people to put the word out there and by putting the word out there to put pressure on in some way or another and there's been some amazing campaigns that you've got through by that and you've always seen the way through uh, strategically. Actually before we get to that I want to ask you what what brought you into the House of Commons in the first place? What was the inspiration and what were you doing before and how did you get there? Because I've never asked you that. before.
1: I've always said that the, the blame lies with my parents. And in fact, they have to live with it because they live in the constituency that I represent, although they always say it's not their fault. As a, as a young child, I was always very struck by a sense of injustice about the world. And I would say, why is the world like this? And they'd say, well, what are you going to do about it? They say they've lived to regret asking me that question having now ended up with me as their MP um I think a sense of social injustice I came from a faith background my uh, my mum was very involved in the local church my parents are activists in their own right within our local community I have
0: actually met your parents <laughs> yes, you, you know it's all true <laughs> well, we were all campaigning in Trafalgar Square about violence against women years ago so I yeah know it's true um
1: but I think that idea that it wasn't enough to have an analysis that the world was unfair you've had to take action has always been uh, an issue for me. So, I was a youth worker before I got elected. I'd been a local councillor. I'd always enjoyed working with people, and I'd always thought it isn't about one person, it's about what many people can achieve. Um, I had actually stood down from local government because I was in my 20s and I was trying to write a, a PhD. My, my academic background's in psychology. I was trying to do a job um, and I was trying to be a councillor, and I didn't really have much of a social life. And in my 20s, I kind of thought that was important. Um, but then the local MP who was somebody I'd worked with as well said he was retiring. And you get to a point where you think, well, this is the community I'm really, I really care about. These are causes I'm really passionate about. If I don't stand up and say, well, actually, I could do this, you will always regret it. Um, you know, these opportunities come along very rarely in your life. And so I had the opportunity to, to say, to represent the community that I care about and fight for the causes that I'm passionate about. Well, that two, was,
0: words, two key words there you. that I know is absolutely true, which is the care and the passion. And I have mm. to say that, again, with my rather cynical hat on for a lot of politicians, um, they go into constituencies they've probably never even visited before because they're safe seats and they're not involved in the community. I won't say all, but I would say a fair amount.
1: But the one thing I would say is, look, if all I can offer to politics is my postcode, that's not enough. So absolutely... No understanding and respecting and, and being interested in the community that you are from is important, but it's not enough. I mean, there are lots of brilliant, brilliant people who care passionately about their local areas, but for whom politics isn't quite the right place for them. And that's okay. What, what I want to do is move away from a politics where we elect 650 people into a place that looks like Hogwarts gone wrong and then expect them to be these kind of mafia dons. And the, look, I think one of the things that worries me about the existing political debate now is that people expect politicians to be biased and they expect us to be, um, you know, th- th- this kind of Matthew, don't, you know, you vote for me, I, sc- I scratch your back, you scratch, rather well, than having values and ideas and being able to to think about the whole country as well. You know, I think Walthamstow is God's own country. I, I know you might disagree with me from where you're based at the moment.
0: Well, I I would, I'm Somerset, you know, but I do think Walthamstow is yeah. so special. <laughs> But I, I also up,
1: yeah. know that does best when the UK does best, when Europe does best, when the world does best. So actually, it's not about trading one off against the other. And in that politics where people expect you to be a kind of mafia don, fixing problems for them on the basis that they will fix things for you, somebody's going to lose out. And actually, I, I don't want a politics of losers. I, I think we all win when we all do well. That's, that's why I'm a socialist. I want to get the best out of each of us for the benefit of all of us. But our politics at the moment isn't really set up to be like that. So it's quite a a frustrating, long-winded, bureaucratic um, and quite small C conservative way of working. And you have to, you always have to have that, you know, know, put it more simply. My mum's always saying to me, it's not about you, you know, and she's right. (laughs) Um, And if you have that in your head, you're always thinking, well, how else can we, make change happen? How else can we get even more out of each other in the time we have available to each other? That's the hopeful, exciting conversation to have. Sitting on green benches, listening to the same speech being given three different ways, and I would include myself in that, is not
0: the most exciting thing to do, I promise you. (laughs) You I I know, I couldn't even imagine doing it. And what what drives you? I I imagine it's the passion for the causes that you follow and that you you drive.
1: I've always been somebody who wanted to to do something about the injustice that I saw. So even as a, a little kid, um, I was told a story about one of the best lessons I learned in campaigning. So I was at uh, an all girls school um, in Colchester and I was very involved in the campaign around Nestle um, providing baby milk in developing countries and the negative impact that was having. And so I managed to persuade all my friends at school that we should boycott Nestle. And I was very excited. and I won this argument with people. And so the school took, all of the Nestle products out of the chocolate machine. And it was one of the best lessons in campaigning I learned because for one day, for one day, we've made a point about how we could support um, our sisters in developing countries. And then I realised that at an all-girls school, there was no chocolate in the chocolate machine. And you can imagine how quickly <laughs> people stopped supporting the campaign. And it, it taught me a, a, a strong lesson about the importance of always thinking ahead about what should happen um, next. And, you know, I still... I, now I'm middle-aged I still like to think I have some of that spirit left in me actually I would say I'm even more determined now than I used to be because when I was younger and when I first became a counsellor and then an MP you know it was always a bit theoretical what you could actually make happen now I've seen how change happens and sometimes how it takes a long time and some of the compromises and the negotiations that go along with it and but also that you know Brilliant things can spin off it. So um, I fought for women in Northern Ireland to have uh, equal access to abortion. One of the things that makes me proudest now is the connections and the support we have within the wider um, women's sector in Northern Ireland to give them the confidence to be heard in their own right. And to see them doing all sorts of amazing things, and know that we helped support them and, and show them that their voices should be heard. Yes. And you think that that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. That's. I mean, I'm not for yeah. one second claiming credit for what they're doing. I just mean to be able to have been part of changing the narrative that said that you you can't be heard. That this process is dead to you. Yeah. To seeing them come forward, and that actually, you know, actually there was
0: always some amazing. That first I mean, you up. Yeah, Northern Ireland. I remember when I was. It, when the peace processes were going on there was a northern ireland women's peace coalition which was extraordinary made up of yeah. uh social workers school teachers housewives who came together and had a lot of uh say in what was going on behind the scenes but of course they never had the front of house uh power I suppose that they have now yeah. in a way but of course they they're going to need it because it's certainly as we've been reading not all finished there yet um so some of the campaigns that I, I mean, there's so many campaigns you've worked on, as you say, the abortion in Northern Ireland was a big one. Uh, let's talk a bit about the tampon tax, because I was actually quite interested. I got... Uh, Something through the post from our local district council this week saying there is funding available to do projects with women in communities, particularly who have suffered, you probably know about this, who particularly suffered from uh, the pandemic and with mental health issues and domestic violence and isolation. And the money has come from the tampon tax, which I thought was quite interesting. Yes.
1: George Osborne thought he was playing a PR blinder by giving us back our tax that we were overpaying on tampons because they were being treated as a luxury item. The tampon tax is—it's really funny, actually, um, because I first sort of became aware of that and stood up on that when I was a teenager. And in fact, when the local MP came to my school, I, I almost got excluded because the head teacher told me if I caused any more fuss, she would exclude me. Challenging the then MP about it, little did I know that 20 years later I would be in the chamber in Parliament where that same MP, a gentleman called Bernard Jenkins, who's a Conservative MP would get up and say 20 years ago a young six form had a go at me about this and now I supported it because obviously from his perspective it was a good example of what he thought was wrong with Europe from my perspective it's not the Europeans who invented treating tampons as a luxury item we used to do that before we joined the European Union um but we found common cause so it, it, it's a funny one in terms of and he, he would acknowledge that it was that conversation 20 years ago that kind of alerted him to that issue and one of the things I would say to people is you know it, it can be amazing if you speak up. What I was about to say for, uh, for a, immediately, yes, but it will you plant seeds, and that's again the thing that makes me sad about our political process at the moment is we expect everybody in parliament to have all the answers, to be right all the time, and then to just defend the status quo come what may. And so, being able to, I mean, sometimes people will start conversations with me and they'll say, like Of course, you know about water regulation X, and I'm thinking, I didn't sit that exam, I don't know about it, tell me about it. Let's have a conversation. And we might not agree at the end of it, but you've made me think and you'll have informed what I do next. Our political process isn't set up for that. I I get the
0: feeling sometimes that um, many MPs and actually Bernard Jenkins, I watched him, for example, last week on Question Time, are really just geared up to know what to answer and how to answer Question Time questions on subjects they don't really have much to do with. And that's their sort of prime focus, um, really. I don't know. I
1: always say I've never had a good idea on my own, right? I... I benefit from the conversations I have at a local, national and indeed international level of in making me think. And again, I think you have to be confident in your ideology. So you have to know what you're passionate about, what your fundamental values are. But being open to how you get there and therefore that there might be something that you don't know that somebody else knows. Um, I thought one of the first campaigns I fought when I was elected was about payday lending. And when I first started campaigning on that and the the legal loan sharks, I could see. Popping up in my community everywhere, that the Wongers, Wongers that yeah. all these people, I was fighting for a, a an interest rate cap. And lots of people said to me, No, 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 I won't support you because that's the wrong thing to do. Now, you know, traditional politics says, right, well then we've got a fight on our hands. What I did was to ask people why they thought it was wrong. And actually the arguments they made about how lenders would put the charges elsewhere so it was pointless were really helpful. That's what came to uh, the idea we eventually came up with. It was a cap on all forms of of charging. So to make sure there wasn't a loophole that these companies could could claw the money back from. If we hadn't have had that conversation, if people hadn't told me I was wrong, but why? And we'd had that conversation, then we'd have been stuck fighting for something that wouldn't have worked as
0: well. And you're still very much behind that whole um, campaign yeah. because you're one retailers, which is the buy now, pay later. Yes, yeah, so and now
1: the thing about these industries is that you know. Um, exploitation in financial services is like water. It tries to find a way through. So now we have these new companies called Klarna and Clearpay and Laybuy who um, offer people the opportunity to spread payments. But of course, people end up spending more than they they intended to. That's why these companies make their money with the retailers. So we've got a lot of people getting into debt with them because what they thought was a £30 pair of trainers is actually worth £120 and they haven't got that money Um, So we've won the argument with the government that these companies should be regulated because they weren't. And now we're fighting for what those regulations should be. Um, You know, it's a good example of where, (laughs) like the chocolate machine, you can't just stop and go, brilliant, I've got rid of the Kit Kats because the next day something else is going to (laughs) happen. And then people will be exploited. Um, You know, I, I see so many people, especially during the pandemic, who come to me who are in real dire financial straits. And it's not just about the money. It's about the impact that it has on their families. It's about the impact it has on their mental health, on their confidence and on their future. And if we can stop these companies from exploiting people, we can stop that happening in the first place rather than just dealing with the consequences of it afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we, we build a better chocolate machine with fair trade chocolate in it from everywhere. That's what. Yeah. I <laughs> in fact, I
0: think it was you. I'm pretty sure it was you. Actually, it was London Fashion Week, which I have been um going on about. for it has got to be changed because I set it up. You know, I don't know, thirty odd years ago, and it's completely out of sync. I think with the, what really is going on in the world, and that was where they had. Was it Clearpay? Actually, is yeah, one of their sponsors. Yeah. And you no, a, they've actually got them on the board. Oh my god. Yeah. I also and I wrote said, me a
1: very rude email, a letter back saying, "How dare I criticise them?" And this was. Helping people make fashion more affordable. And I just
0: thought, you just don't get it. That's outrageous. You know, well, if I personally think that's not a good place to be. And to have, I mean, if they're so desperate for sponsors that they've got to have a company like that as one of their sponsors, I just think the whole of Fashion Week's got to take a very serious look at itself, stop, pause, and say, okay, where are we going from here? It's, it's, it's.
1: But do you know what, Lynn? It's a great example. So look, I can try and table stuff in Parliament, and don't get me wrong, I have a platform as an MP that I'm trying to use, but actually everybody listening to this, anyone, can make a stand on these things and can can help inform other people. Like a lot of people don't realise the risks in buy now, pay later. And one of the things I've always thought in politics is that everybody has power, but we don't always talk about how people can use that. So we sideline the public and we say it's just about the Mafia Don in Westminster and whether they pick things up so you think well that creates an impossible job to do but it also denies the power and agency we all have as consumers as you know fellow citizens to say to people
0: actually this isn't fashionable this isn't how fashion should work i mean the late the late Absolutely, The late, great Anita Roddick body shop used to talk about the dollar vigilantes. And we all can be vigilantes as consumers. Yeah. And it is primarily women that make the decisions on what they're going to buy. And we can use that vote, that dollar vote, that pound vote in a very smart way. If we actually do declare like Fashion Revolution set up by my friend, DiCastro, who I interviewed here a few weeks ago, says, let's ask where our clothes are made, how they're made. What are the, what harm is it doing to the environment? How people are being exploited in the, in the manufacturing? And let's make a conscious decision that we want something beautiful to wear, but let's make it uh, something, and not just what we wear, but what we eat and um, what we buy for our homes is made in a fair way. We women have that power. We can all use it, and, and I'm all for it. So the other things that you're pushing out is... Um, uh, amendments in the domestic abuse bill making misogyny a hate crime which you got through the house of lords a few weeks ago congratulations on that now again you're looking as you said earlier about the index of actually creating an index and that went through last night which is fantastic news i want to talk we now have to
1: bring those arguments in the comments because the way i I just assume you've won them now (laughs) (laughs) not yet (laughs) well brilliantly always told me to put the word yes at the end of sentences and she's absolutely right so you know you say i haven't done this yet and it changes your mindset but that you're going to do it you just might need to keep working at it i'm
0: a great believer in manifestation power of the mind so i wanted to talk to you about the covert human intelligence sources that yeah. you've also um started campaigning on which i find incredibly worrying do you want to explain a bit about what that means yeah so uh, i mean actually this
1: legislation has now become law And I mean, the first thing we'll say is we do need legislation because this stuff had already been happening. So the police, our secret services, had been recruiting people to be intelligence sources, essentially to spy for them for many years. But there were no rules and regulations about how they were doing. So we always wanted a piece of legislation to formalise that and to put protections in. The issue for me was whether it had the right protections in and whether the other things needed to be in it. And in particular, when people talk about this, they tend to think about like James Bond when you talk about spies. Or people might be aware of the um, the cases involving the police who've out, yeah.
0: um,
1: but very few people realise that children have been used as as covert human intelligence sources, essentially, so to spy. Um, and actually, that's been increasing because children have been involved in more serious crime. In particular, in a community like mine, I see a lot of it with the county lines issue. So, children getting involved in drug dealing, being used and exploited because they're vulnerable kids. Um, but also then being approached by the police to help inform on the people they're in. And we should be really clear, this legislation was about giving people permission to commit criminal activity as part of helping an investigation. So when it came to children, we're talking about children being encouraged to do criminal things um, in order, so, and, and to stay in places of risk, because of course it's incredibly dangerous for a child to be in that place in order to help an investigation. Now, thankfully, it happens very rarely but I worked with an organisation, a brilliant organisation called Just for Kids to try and get into the bill because there was nothing in the bill when it was first written, proper protections and safeguards for children. Because, I mean, you might say, look, well, surely we should just never, ever use a, a child in that way. But this also covered things like children perhaps going into an off licence and buying alcohol. And that's something I think people would recognise as a, a thing that happens, that you, you do that to test the, that people are following the law so we had to find a way through about making sure that if you were ever going to ask a child to do that, there were people there who could protect their interests. Because a lot of the times the police have conversations with the children on their own. So there's nobody else there to kind of act as a, a check and balance. Um, and the, also it was only ever in an exceptional circumstance. It was only ever when there was no other way of getting information because this bill would allow children to spy on their parents um, and have that relationship, just Quite horrible. a lot of things when you get That's- into it. It's really quite worrying. Um, Again, that was one that's probably the first one where I started working across the House with members of the House of Lords and there some brilliant, uh, B. Van Kidren absolute legend uh, and Lord Simon Russell as well and Lord George Young. Now, again, if you'd have told my 15-year-old self that George Young, who is a former Conservative government minister, he's a, a really interesting guy and he was really agreed with us that it was important to protect children. So we all worked together to formulate proposals and legislation and to win that battle back and forth between the Commons and the Lords to get it into the bill. And now the bill has an explicit protection for children that it's only in exceptional circumstances and that there have to be appropriate adults involved um, to be able to protect their welfare. And you know, it's one of those things we will see in time. The, The figures are only published every couple of years about how many children are asked to do this. But in, in having that conversation, we were able also to hold the police and the secret services to account and to get them out of the mindset that this child was involved in criminal behavior. So it was okay, you know, first and foremost, they need to be seen as a child. Um, And we've got, we've got more work to do to follow up in terms of the codes of conduct and guidance. But, you know, six months ago when we started, there was nothing. And now that's a massive part of that piece of legislation. So it does take time and it takes raising awareness and it takes having proposals because often what people say is, well, what would you do then? And you have to be able to answer that question. But it is possible to get these things to move. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that because I feel like some very vulnerable children will have support that they wouldn't have had had we not acted together to do that.
0: So I think it's very important. Um, I want to talk to you about protesting generally, because yeah. obviously we've had Black Lives Matter and then we had um, the Sarah Everard v- v- vigils and uh, there seems to be such a strong effort right now to curb people from going out and on, on protesting, which is a human rights, really. What's your feeling about that? Because there's bills yeah, going have, through all the time. and I find I've spoken out
1: on the, the policing bill that's currently going through Parliament because I think not only is it very dangerous in a democracy, to say, well, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Um, absolutely. You know, it's a bit like free speech. It's not an unqualified right. You don't have a right to shout fire in a in a la- in, a, in a crowded theatre and not take responsibility for what happens. So absolutely, the way in which you protest needs to be peaceful. It needs to, needs to be democratic protest. You know, I draw a distinction between those people who protest to intimidate and silence others and those people who protest to, to be able to speak up. But those are boundaries that we can draw. Um I mean, to give you an example of how this bill is just it's unworkable more than anything, whether you think it's right to to challenge protesters or not. The bill talks about serious annoyance as a guidance for when you can shut down a protest. Now, I have to be honest, Lynn, there are lots of things that seriously annoy me. But, you know, sometimes you're Scooby Doo and sometimes you're Larry David in terms of your levels of what, what annoys you. The idea that that's going to be a test that we ask the police to apply and then we hold them to account for it. You know, that's an impossible test for any police officer to be, You know, what, what's one person's serious annoyance is another person's important Absolutely. point being made. So logically, it just doesn't work.
0: Well, um, I, I was just interested to see all the big protests about outside the football clubs that didn't seem to be stopped at all by all the fans. And yeah. yes, at, again, at these, um, these events at the um, to reclaim the streets, how that seemed to bring up so much anger. Yeah,
1: and point. I think, I, I mean, look, I have tried to do a lot of work with the Met police because I have very real concerns with how the Met address violence against women and their engagement more generally uh, with misogyny the what we've won so to date is that from the autumn the police will have to record instances of crimes which are motivated toward by hostility towards sex or gender because there are a quarter of police forces in this country already doing that and it's helping to piece together where women are at risk but the met is not one of them Um, the next stage of this is to get it into the court system so that you can then recognize an aggravated sentence because it's a form of hate crime
0: yeah. um,
1: but what i think you saw with sarah everard and you know i was really concerned when i read the report that the police did into it and they suddenly said this justifies the approach that we took it, it worked on the basis that there was no other form of action that could have happened so even though you had some incredibly seasoned organizers and campaigners looking to organize that vigil and to have it socially distanced and have thought about how to make it happen they decided that those women didn't know what they were doing, and so they had to step in. And in stepping in, they took away the idea that there was any other way in which that could have been managed, that whether you'd had stewards there on the evening and community engagement, you could have have asked people to leave in a way that would have been um, more ordered. And I think, for me, there are questions that remain about how the police engage with community groups and protests, because they see everybody as one lumped together but actually we know that if you are the bnp you will get a lot of attention and they will find ways to facilitate you what we saw with the sarah everard vigil was a dismissal of the experience of the organizers that i think was mistaken yes um and that that culture needs to change within the police
0: The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, of course, the fact that at the time of recording this, the figures you put out yesterday were there were 18 more women have been killed on the streets since Sarah Everard, which is a shocking figure. Well, not all on the street. Yeah. And I think
1: for, for us, that's why we are so determined. Look, there's always a point when suddenly people become aware of an issue and it becomes a national debate. And the responsibility of all of us is to take that moment and turn it into something concrete. Because we know those moments are few and far between. That's really hard to do. You have to move from having an analysis to to answers and you have to be prepared to work with people to make them happen. Um, Because it's really easy in politics to hold out for a storm. So, you know, um, you can have a couple of days of bad headlines and then people move on. To actually get something to change means you have to say to people, it's not enough that you agree with me that something should be done. Here's the thing that should be done. Do you agree that should happen? And one of the challenges I always make to all campaign organisations, and I would say this in particular, you know, I'm really worried about our climate. There's a massive climate crisis going on. The challenge to organisations like Extinction Rebellion is to move us from an analysis that says this is an urgent nightmare to and these are the things that we can do. Because otherwise, all politicians will stand and say, yes, there's a climate emergency. Yes, it's really important that we act, but we won't get any meaningful change. And following Sarah Everard's death, you know the government was put on discretion about well, what are you doing to keep women safe? And they would say things like, "Well, yes, you know we recognise this is a problem." And then they came up with this idea about having police in nightclubs or CCTV, as if it was about whether women should go out at night rather I
0: miss, I miss than women that are at risk one. wherever. I saw yeah. the street the streetlight one. Yes, uh, there's so much that can be done, and I think it's coming up with the appropriate solutions, that's for sure, because they're not there at the moment.
1: you can drive... And and where protest gets it right is where it moves... It creates the space for that solution to, to come forward. So if I think about something like Jubilee 2000, where millions of people took to the streets, people were protesting in their communities, but it created the space about cancelling debt, because cancelling debt was a solution. And actually... You know, what was so powerful about those experiences is people could see the consequence of their campaigning leading to real change. So they thought that change was important to make happen. I worry at the moment that we're collapsing into, well, let's just make a fuss and say this isn't my idea, but not saying, but what should happen instead? Yes. And For me, I do this job not because I say I want to sit on the green benches and make the same speech three different ways or even go to nice lunches or even have people tell me I'm lovely and have a photo taken with me saying I care about the same things as them. I want to see meaningful change. And I I feel as impatient as I was as a 15 year old for that to happen. And that sometimes means having the difficult conversations about what can we do rather than just saying, well, somebody shouldn't have done that. Um, Because if we don't
0: do that, it's just people get off the hook. I completely agree. I mean, we have to have the solutions and we have to have the visions and the visions have to be based on our values. And for me, that's what politics are about. And whether the current political system in its own way can really come up with those solutions, I have huge doubts myself. I think there's ways that it will come back to community. It should come back to community. And I hope and and believe women will take a leadership role in those communities to create this vision of how it can be. Yeah, I have to believe that the political
1: sphere can be that process, but I know it has to change. You know, a lot of my day I could just be a prop in people's photographs. I get asked to go to meetings where someone wants to brief me and I think, well, I learned to read when I was a little kid. So if you just want me to read something, that's great. If you want to have a conversation about how we change this, that's a different kettle of fish. Um, Or I get asked if I will sign something that looks like it's like parliamentary graffiti to say something should be should be done. And I always try and say to people, ask more. Don't, don't let's do the things that let people off the hook. Let's ask more. And then you do your bit too. Because I say, I, I'm one person in Hogwarts. You know, if if like with the stalking register, it really now needs people across this country to speak up and say, hang on a minute, if women are still dying because we're not monitoring these people, then rather than asking women to do this, why aren't we asking the police to do that? And the only way that happens is there's a dedicated list that they are accountable for. Mm. That you know, everybody can use, whether it is social media or speaking to their MP, because every MP is going to have a vote on it on Monday. So there's a really clear moment where change can happen. But I am one voice in that. And admittedly, I will lobby my colleagues. But if they get lobbied by people in their communities, if people are talking about it nationally, that makes it a completely different proposition. And that's something we can all be part of. I I I get the idea that I'm something special because I'm an MP. I just have a different platform to the one that you have everybody can use their platform
0: yeah well that's in fact the question i was going to ask you was the next question is coming towards the end now is what advice would you give to people wanting to reconnect with their communities um you know what what can we do i mean lobbying our mp is clearly part of it i also think that You know, making uh, a a statement. If you think about the whole country going outside their front doors at one time to clap for the NHS, why aren't we going outside our front door and making a statement that way if we don't want to go on marches? There are many, many ways we can do things, and and I believe that we should, and taking action in whatever way we can. So what ways would you say that, um, other than course lobbying our MPs, um, (laughs) uh, we can actually make a change in our communities, even from a local perspective?
1: I I always work from what I call the a perspective which is first of all you have to have answers not just analysis you can't just say the world is unfair someone should do something about it i'm going to go and tell that mp that counselor my local neighborhood group somebody should i'm going to come up with some answers and that that is scary because it's putting your head above a parapet and the second thing i would say is that in that process you need to build allies not just um props so you know the, the point about the props is like everyone sit in the meeting and agree with me is not the same as what can we do together. I worked. I went and lobbied Jacob Rees-Mogg about the abortion stuff. Now I know Jacob feels very strongly, completely differently to me. But there were points at which the government was trying to use parliamentary procedure back when Jacob was a, a backbencher that I thought well, we would agree that this isn't right. I didn't manage to convince him, but I'm really glad I went and tried because if finding allies with people is always about not being frightened to, to, to speak to somebody and show them that you have the respect of thinking that they could help. And you'd be amazed in a local community who else can help. Absolutely. I mean, as an MP, I have very little power. I, I don't run my local council. I don't have any pots of money to spend on things. Um, especially as a backbench opposition MP, I don't control the government agenda. So. Really, I'm very. I, I have much less power than, say, a local council would, or maybe a local business, or a local school would, or a local hospital. Go and talk to them. See if you can convince them to be part of what you can do. And then finally, you need you need actions, not agitation. So, what do I mean by that? You know, agitation and a lot of politics now. People start angry, and then they ask you a question, and you're like, "That's just emotionally, that's quite hard." You know, I, I always used to when I when I was able to do community groups meetings together. I always make sure there's a cup of tea and a biscuit because I think people make bad decisions, behave badly towards each other if they're hangry. So actions come not from winding people up, but actually being open to, well, okay, we might disagree, but what can we agree on? And can we agree that we should write to somebody and let them know about it? Agitation is, I'm going to stop the traffic and just expect you to understand why that's happening. Actions are, actually, if we car share, we can cut the amount of pollution in our local community, So it's thinking about the actions that you can take that would make people want to do take them with you. And that includes members of parliament, includes councillors, includes people who are probably trying their best. You know, most MPs, most councillors, most political representatives are good people who care about this country, care about the communities. That's why they do what they do. But they're quite frazzled. They're trying to deal with a system that's quite bureaucratic and out of date and they can't do everything. So if you help them think about the actions they can take that will help you because you're taking action yourself, you're the one going and talking to the hospital, you're the one going and talking to local school kids about maybe what they could do to re- to remove single-use plastics from their local community, it's completely different from an agitated kind of, right, well, we're demanding a meeting with you, we've got a to-do list for you, and why haven't you done it immediately? Like, just emotionally thinking about that and how people will work together, it, what's brilliant about it is if you if you think in those three ways, the, you know, having an answer having allies and having actions you build relationships that don't just help you solve one issue they start changing all sorts of things you and I met over one issue but we've continued to work together and collaborate because I hope you found it a positive and constructive experience because it's like here's where I need your help and actually can I help you and can we show people that it's possible to change things? Because then it's even more worth being part of what we're doing.
0: Yes, and that absolutely works. And um, in my own little town, in our own little council, it's unbelievable how you get these different oppositions. It's not even arguing about policies or or, or, or judgments about what we're doing in the town. It ends up just being people against people. And um, I don't understand it myself, what but I find... Cup of tea and a biscuit. starting I, I agree. Cup of tea and a biscuit. So I can hear the baby. So I know you've got to go. Um, but I just want to ask you one last thing, which is really what next? Apart from having another baby, of
1: course. <laughs> well, and possibly taking the government to court over the fact that we don't have maternity cover for people in this country. Yes. I, don't, I don't have confirmed maternity cover. And for my community, I want to make sure that they will see no difference if I'm away for six months with my second baby. I managed to get a locum for my first but actually the only piece of legislation this government has passed in this pandemic to do with maternity has been about giving maternity cover to members of the cabinet if members of parliament don't have a proper maternity cover how on earth can we fight for it for our constituents and yet thousands of pregnant women have lost their jobs during the pandemic um obviously pregnant women we still don't know properly whether they're going to be able to have the vaccine although the government has now said they can the logistics aren't there to deliver it in the way in which they need to do it and, you know, fighting for those issues and making sure that we don't forget women and particularly we don't forget mothers in the pandemic who've borne the brunt of the redundancy so far is so crucial, not just to our economy, but to our equality and our future potential as a country. So um, I've got four months until I give birth <laughs> uh, and I've got a plan. You've got it. Um, of course you have. To, yeah, that we, we, we fight this because, because it will benefit everyone. You know, yeah. we're one of the least productive countries in the G7. It's not by accident. We've got a big gender pay gap. We've got a big um, ethnic pay gap.
0: You know, the diversity issues are, are huge and they hold us all back. There is so much. And I get very depressed about um, government. And when I do get depressed, I feel one little light out there. And I think, but Stella Crease is there. And I really mean that. Yeah. And And, you know, what you do, Stella, is just... Extraordinary, fantastic. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and everybody that benefits from the hard work you do, particularly for women. I'm very grateful that you have time today to join me. I'm with you every step of the way. Anytime you want any collaboration from me and putting the word out there, I'm there 100%. So, I'm just
1: one cog. There is a whole army. And, and in fact, it is an army. I'd like, and like to believe it, but everything. I have met a lot of the
0: others. <laughs> I mean, there are some wonderful women in in government, particularly women, actually, I have to say, strong women, and have been over the years, fantastic Harriet Harman, Yvette Cooper. Why do
1: we expect women to be perfect? You know, women are, we're not one homogenous love. We're
0: not perfect. But we okay. are nurturing, and we do care. <laughs> and many of us are mothers. And if we're not mothers, we're daughters and sisters. And there's something about the way the women do politics and and our leaders that I I can see it in my, mm-hmm. myself and my heart is does come it comes from the heart far more. It's just the way it is. It's not about power. And it, and I hope this new paradigm of a more feminine led way of doing things, whether it's gender based or whether it's just a change of coming from the heart instead of from the head or the wallet is going to be the future that's got to be the future really that's how I see the new future that we can make now
1: I think we have to change to put compassion at the heart of how we work I would say that women are as capable as men of promoting the alternative that I mean I have to be honest in the direct oh yeah the the direct discrimination I faced as a as a mum in terms of my political career and people now telling me that I can't Take on leadership positions that I can't cope with things anymore has come
0: from women. Oh, I hate um, it when I, which hear is that. really frustrating. There are some awful women in no. your world too, and and you know we have to learn. We have to really learn and understand about the sisterhood that there is a need for it. We've had two thousand plus years of being subdued and subjugated, and it is time for us women to come together. And the women that you are talking about, um, on the whole, or the women I am talking about, tend to feel that they have to behave in this old masculine paradigm way to get on. And they need to come out into the modern world and breathe the air and see what's really going on. I was what's always
1: fascinated by um, Margaret Thatcher's diaries because she wrote about when in the 1970s, when she was in the shadow cabinet for the Conservatives, so before she became prime minister, and she was the only woman. And she used to write about being annoyed that she was asked to speak for all women. And I thought that was fascinating because I completely get that. I mean, You know, I couldn't possibly speak for all women in my constituency because they are incredibly diverse, talented bunch with all sorts of different experiences. My job is to create them a platform for them, as it is for the men in my constituency, so that you can see what they're capable of and learn from it. But we will make progress when we stop expecting one woman to be every woman. Um, You know, I love it when the government appoints a lady, and I always think of it as the the lady vote in things. And it's like, yeah, there you go, that's women covered off. As though 51% of the population all think with one mind, a bit like the scene in the film Witches, you know, you get us all in a room, we'll all take off our masks and actually we'll all part some secret cabal with secret wording, secret intention. Of like well, tr- course, I, tr- I believe we a are. A lot of people. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, maybe we should start saying that because then they might not oh, I, I, I don't want to upset them. Who knows what spells they might cast? Yeah, I love, <laughs> I do not <totally laughs>
0: admit to being a witch. I'm, I'm, that's <laughs> one of the reasons I live in Somerset. I flew here on my broomstick, no doubt about it. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Give that baby of yours a big kiss from me. Ooh. And uh, let's hope we meet up at some time in the not too distant future and good luck with the pregnancy. Love you lots. And Thank you. Fantastic. Mommy. Congratulations for everything you're doing. God bless you. <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye. Yeah, Bye. <laughs> I'd now like to introduce the exercise of getting involved in your community. There's so many ways we can do this, whether it's volunteering at your local food bank, finding a community garden to be involved in, or even getting in touch, as Stella suggests, with your own MP to tell them what changes you'd like to see in your area. Have a think about where you would like to put your energy and where you can make some changes. I'd love to share your stories and hear about them. So why not get in touch with me at Seed Women with Lynn Franks on Facebook or on Instagram and let me know how you have become a changemaker in your own community. Thank you so much for listening. I would love you to subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review it. Also, make sure you join our Seed Network if you haven't already and join the thousands of like-minded women where you can make friends, promote your businesses, and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com and find out more. So join us in two weeks' time on Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks. Bye.